the History Between Bites podcast, the podcast where we talk about your favorite foods and where they come from. Today's episode is on mozzarella. We'll be discussing the origin, processes, and uses, as well as jumping back into Italy and discussing how the consortium has its hands on this beloved cheese, too. Then we will try to make mozzarella. And then we'll tell you why we need to make more. So get comfy, grab a snack, and get ready for History History Between Between Bites. We might we'll just get have there. to do a one at a per- one person at a time. We'll go back and forth each week. <laughs> Perfect. Easy. So yeah, so while I was telling you a, a minute ago, literally, this was not the easiest to research. It's not so much that there's not stuff out there. There's stuff out there, but it all seems to be the exact same blurb in, in like a paragraph. And so unless you're going into like actual scholarly articles most information that you can just get from a quick google search on mozzarella is going to be from pizza companies and it's all the same thing that's like we use amazing mozzarella and mozzarella has been around this long and from this dude and blah 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 and yay eat our pizza but it's the exact same few sentences and so you're like cool got it cite your sources motherfuckers (laughs) i had that problem with italian herb seasoning too and i was like are you Fucking kidding. Like, it would be, like, literally Food Network. Sorry, mm-hmm. I'm opening a bottle, podcast listeners, because okay. I forgot to do that before we recorded. <laughs> it's fine. Okay. Yeah. So we had the same problem. And they would give me at least, like, a name and a, and a time period and what it is, but I couldn't find the original source itself, which drove me crazy. So it's in here, but I don't know exactly what the document was part of or looked like or like what it was included into. It just says like in a 12th century document by this guy, it says this thing. So again, I don't know if it was like a letter. I don't know if it was sort of just the goings on of his life at the time because he's a monk. Surprise. So his letters were probably incredibly fucking foreign with like little bits of, oh, look, interesting things. Well, and because they wrote down every single thing that they did. And so, but I can't, I just can't find that source. So. Well, not every single thing they did because they wouldn't talk about things as grody as bodily functions or masturbation. But they weren't doing that, Birdie. Oh, no. No. (laughs) Guys, you. Never. Male population that listens to this. You have all heard some dude in your circle go, but women don't have gross bodily functions on some level at some age. You've heard that like girls don't poop when you were in like first grade. Yeah. Apparently the real one is monks don't masturbate. Uh, they, they don't also, have normal bodily functions. They don't also have sex with both consenting and non-consenting parties. They definitely don't have sex with other men. Nope, That's not no, why they're in a monastery. No, absolutely not. If you want a really fun deep dive, which we should probably do for Atheist and a Jew on mm-hmm. coming soon, uh, on our episode about like religious history and things like that, I want you to look up brotherhood ceremonies in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Oh, God. Oh, I'm sure that they're just as weird as like the brotherhood ceremonies of like, quote, secret societies, like European secret societies. Oh, they're gay marriage, but you can't yeah, call it yeah, marriage. Yeah, they, pretty much. It's just. It's two bros sitting in a hot tub six feet apart because they're not gay, but the religious equivalent. Like, yeah, we promise to love and honor each other and spend all of our time together and hanging out. And I'm going to put you first and you're going to put me first. And we're like bestie, brother, friend, platonic things. And we definitely don't have sex. Definitely yeah. don't have sex. Don't That's have a, any sex. 
feelings. But it just like brings to mind like Greek pater- uh, pederasty to mind yeah. where it's like, you know, it, th- then there's an age discrepancy that's added to it, but Woohoo, like, age oh. gaps, relationships. Yeah, you're like, oh, no, no, we're not having sex with these young boys. We're just putting our penises in between their thighs. Maybe. And you're like, right, okay, that's a, that's a nice way to put it. That's the Bill Clinton defense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I I took a hit, but I didn't inhale. Yes, yeah, like, I didn't. Oh, I, didn't I was thinking. Them, but I, I was thinking oral sex doesn't count as sex. Like, <laughs> this is like Mormon soaking, which I still haven't figured out if that's a real thing. Like, and this episode is being marked as explicit. <laughs> <laughs> we discussed sexual lubrication on our first episode. That ship has sailed. I just put explicit on all of them. I'm like, I don't remember what I said, but I'm pretty sure there's an F-bomb. That seems explicit. So with the mozzarella stuff, uh, there's a ton. I mean, there's there's a huge amount of information on cheese history. And so I have a little bit of the cheese history in this sort of precluding when we get to mozzarella, because you kind of have to know a little bit of the background and kind of cheese as it is just a food item for for us and when that began. But I steer away from a lot of things. Like literally I could talk about, uh, cheese is a global history. So I could go on four hours and we're not. And really dive. <laughs> oh, right. like, I need to set the chicken timer. Yes, yes, set the chicken timer. So like I could go into all these different regions and talk about the different cheeses. I mean, I literally could probably talk for two hours about brie. We will one day. Well, I think all of season three is probably going to be cheese. Good, because we'll be able to do it. Okay, so to begin the history of mozzarella, again, I'm going to take us on a brief journey through the history of cheese. Cheese. Uh, Archaeologists and historians um, can only theorize when cheese first appeared on our ancient ancestors' tables. Many theories begin with the evidence of animal domestication some 9,000 years ago in the Middle East, China, Eastern Asia and uh the sahara goats and yeah goats and sheep were domesticated in iran and broader parts of the middle east water buffalo are domesticated in china and the camel was domesticated in africa dairy cows as we know them today are a much later development and are most likely a descendant from the cattle from asia and the indian subcontinent that were introduced possibly as early as the Neolithic era, but probably the late Neolithic era, which uh, so Neolithic era is from 10,000 BCE to 2200 BCE. So the latter part of that, although evidence also shows that there's a genetic connection to the cattle of Africa as well. So our cows are kind of a little hodgepodge of the cattle trading. It's pretty much exactly what you'd expect from a domesticated animal, though. It's like, we're going to take the best parts of all of these different Exactly. And work them together. And now oh, we yeah. have like genetic testing and stuff like that too, that we can do with dairy cattle, which does happen. Oh, regularly. oh yeah. There's, I have, there were many uh, article about genetic testing on cows and buffaloes and mozzarella and ancient jars that I had to sift through, which was, Boy. it was fun, but it's also, it's just not in like my academic vernacular to read science articles so I get it but also there's some things that I'm like I have no idea what we're talking about right now because you know I'm like I know what a mass spectrometer is but then they start like breaking that down and I'm like right okay. <laughs> I'm like I cool just... so cheese <laughs> um we'll get better we'll get more familiar with it and I don't know I just I end up having to look up a lot of words which is also totally fine because then I'm learning 
So the domestication of animals doesn't necessarily mean the use of milk products. So Andrew Sherratt, a titan in the field of archaeology, postulated the theory of the second products revolution that states that prior to 3500 BCE, humans kept domesticated animals only for meat, hide, and bones. After this point in time is when humans began to use, quote, renewable animal products like milk and wool, things that didn't require the slaughtering of the animal. And so there's just... Go I'm ahead. not sure if I buy that, to be honest with you. Um, and the reason being is because our ancient ancestors were not fucking stupid. No. Uh, they would have known about things like breastfeeding being common to land animals. Um, and they would have also known that milk was in like absolutely essential for keeping babies alive. Yeah. They would have known that the coats keep the cows warm and cozy during the winter and probably wanted that for themselves. And does that mean that they would have kept them alive and learned shearing techniques? Not necessarily. Um, but I also wouldn't rule that out. The secondary products revolution is an interesting thought process, but I, I think it's lacking. And I think it's lacking because a lot of the secondary products would have been the product of women's work and women's work was very rarely something that would have left behind archeological tools that men would have noticed and frankly yes that's the other thing is that the second products revolution is really based on negative evidence so instead of there being you know a thing that you pull out of the earth and you can see that's that's a positive Mm -hmm. um evidence right meaning that there is something to hold in history and with archaeology as well it's just as important to note what isn't there as it is to say what is there and so this theory is really dependent on the things that they're not finding but that's part of the problem too is that you're not going to find milk you're not going to find ancient cheese because it would have been eaten away yeah and i mean this is what cheese is we do have some ancient cheeses but not in you know in a home like a normal home amphora you're not going to find milk it's just not going to exist uh and so there have been studies done on different ancient pottery but again it's it's hard to find milk and also, um, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. It just means we haven't necessarily found it yet. Yes. And this is what's going to be the crux of our conversation in an atheist and a Jew. <laughs> the lack of evidence is not evidence. Vice versa. It's, I'm yeah. so excited for this conversation. But anyways, oh, me too. Um, one of the other things that's interesting to know is just the human ability to digest milk. Mammals, including humans, stop being able to digest lactose after weaning. And this is because our bodies stop developing enzymes necessary to digest milk. Even human milk, we don't continue to be able to digest because we grow, right? We we lose that um, that enzyme production. However, at some random point in human evolution, humans began to be able to drink unpasteurized milk past the weaning point in our lives. And this happened to peoples from Northeast and South Africa, Europe, Northern and Western Asia, and some parts in Southern Asia. And this definitely coincides with the introduction of dairy farming and dairy products into the culinary milieu. So you see both, right, where you have the second products revolution saying that this started much later. And perhaps factors in that fact that like we just it would be useless if we hadn't developed this evolutionary trait of being able to tolerate lactose, which I think still only like 40 percent of the world's population really have. Yeah, that. But most of them are white people. And that's why milk is ubiquitous. 
This is true. Yes. Um, but then also looking at this, this evol evolutionary development, right? It's like, we don't know when that happened, when we were starting to be able to process lactose past the weaning point, but we can see it in these regions. And so that becomes where we can trace animal farming and the beginnings of animal farming to the places where lactose intolerance doesn't exist, basically. Or is much less common. Like. Yes. And I love that we don't call it a dairy allergy yeah, <laughs> because we well, know we couldn't get people to stop consuming dairy. Well, and I don't know so much that it is an allergy. I mean, it's, it's that you don't like, you can't digest it. It really is something that should be inedible. Like it's, it's inedible yeah. unless you have the ability to process lactose. But even then we just process the lactose out of it and then we can just keep eating dairy products because cheese is fucking delicious yeah so yeah you're not yeah. going to keep humans away from butter and cheese it's just not not really going to happen no of course it's not no i'm like even in places where olive oil is the staple sort of cooking fat you're still gonna have there's still a ton of butter there yeah so cheese really ends up being kind of this answer for keeping milk longer so milk without modern processes can spoil within days even hours if it's like a hot day and once our ancestors discovered that they can make cheese from the milk, they were able to keep it shelf stable for longer and still reap some of the nutritional benefits. So that's sort of the idea of how the hell did we figure out milk, right? Well, it's spoiled on our counter, how we figure out cheese. It spoils on our counter. And then we see that it separates out and we do stuff with it because we're curious little humans. <laughs> I think that's kind of, that's possibly one of the reasons that buttermilk and buttermilk products became so common, especially in my beloved area of mm -hmm. Appalachia, um, is that a lot of the early American processes that we see once colonizers started to actually thrive in those areas is the creation of buttermilk biscuits and their early proto-ancestors with like literal pan space cakes and things like that, yeah. and pan breads that are made with buttermilk. So like earlier precursors to sourdough and then just tons of butter that was used pretty much all the time. Yeah. So it's like just like Paula Deen is pretty indicative of how much butter is being used. Yeah. And racism. <laughs> Trying to learn from one's racist ways, but still being canceled. She's sure she's problematic for a number of reasons. I don't really keep up on the Paula Deen no, history. She's just like, she's like your well-meaning, but still kind of racist grandma. From what I've from what I've understood, because I don't really like her recipes very much. Not the amount of butter; she just doesn't season her shit very well. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, she's white. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's true. I there's no way I can cite this, but I saw on TikTok or TikTok Reel where there was a guy who. So the first first it starts out with a woman who was cooking chicken and rice, and she takes rice. And she puts it into a casserole dish and she puts water and then okay. she puts the chicken on top, raw chicken on top. Uh -huh. And it's like a one pot meal. Okay. So she pops that in the oven and when she pulls it out, it's white ass chicken and white rice made with water. And she was like, see, you can have perfectly juicy, perfectly cooked chicken in just 20 minutes in the oven. And you can also have your rice, blah, 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 like one pot meal. And here's the thing. I'm all on board with a one pot meal. I'm on board with 20 minute chicken. I'm on board with seven minute chicken. I got a pressure cooker. What but I'm not it, on board. 
It was pastier than we are, okay? And we are some northern, <laughs> northwestern European descent white. <laughs> I glow. The um, area around my face, like my nose and mouth is pink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and mine is just not because I got a little makeup on today. But <laughs> but so then it, it flips to this guy who was like, how do you say that you're white? And then he pulls out his giant like seasoning drawer that's like beautiful, like Pinterest level season drawer. He goes, so how, do you, how do you say that you're white, but non-practicing? And it's my favorite thing now. So that's just what I tell people. They're like, if I don't want to tell them that I'm a Jew because it's questionable, I just feel like I'm a non-practicing white person. Because um, <laughs> I do things like um, I, I don't I don't have flags that have uh, reptiles on them. Um, I season my food. I'll walk in a gay pride. You know, like I'm just non-practicing white. <laughs> But anyways, all the things that get cut out. I know. <laughs> Cheese. So, yes. Cheese. So the earliest evidence, there's some earlier evidence, but it's um, it's from, they're called cheese. Oh God, what are they? They're like cheese separate. They're called cheese separators. They kind of look like colanders of the ancient world. It's a word that we've attributed to this device in the modern period after finding them than what they would have necessarily been called in the time period. So we don't know if they're actual use was for cheese or if they were just a fucking colander so that's some of the earliest stuff but again doesn't really factor into like definitive cheese evidence so the earliest evidence definitive evidence of cheese is from egypt and again we find jars full of shit um so there's two (laughs) jars that were found with unknown substances in them from a tomb of an egyptian um pharaoh from the first dynasty Dating in the first dynasty is from 3100 to 2900 BCE. So it's in a tomb of one of these pharaohs. I wonder which scientist tasted it. uh, So this is hilarious. I make note of this. So in the the inscription on the jars reads RWT, which is a word that they can't. It's an untranslatable word. So they don't know what it really means, but it says RWT from the north and RWT from the south. And the substance was examined, but the author of Cheese, A World History, notes that it was not tasted. <laughs> and on, when they on record, it was yeah, not yeah, tasted. Yes. So it was examined and found to be cheese. And even though we don't know what RWT means, um, we do know that the Egyptians were already like avid cattle herders. That paired with the fact that the first dynasty was responsible for uniting Upper and Lower Egypt, it would make sense that the products from both North and Southern Egypt would end up in this pharaoh's tomb, which is also really cool. Like those things lined up really well. So that's very neat. It's wrapped up in a nice little cheese bow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, As far as text and textual evidence that we have, the we have Sumerian texts dating from the late third millennium containing within them the word gahar which is their word for cheese i also make that sound when i'm just housing a bunch of cheese (laughs) (laughs) what is that thing i don't know (laughs) all right that's its name i love it Uh, i love how you went from sumerian to like chewbacca Uh, (laughs) but yes somebody would have cleaned it up yeah, yeah, yeah. Portion. Yes, but uh, so the there's also Akkadian sources and glossaries that are like Sumerian to Akkadian glossaries uh, that have some 18 to 20 different names for cheeses that were borrowed from both Sumerian languages and other other surrounding regions. So there's a lot of cheese happening. 
in the region of, you know, Mesopotamia, Sumeria. Cheese is awesome. <laughs> yes. Yes. One of the fun things that I found was the word Nahagu or Nahagu. I don't know. Again, I don't speak ancient Akkadian, but it was also used as an insult. And some historians speculate that this is indicative of the cheese being smelly, while other things think that it's more about the shape of the cheese and not the smell, because the word literally means dung. <gasps> it either smelt like shit or it looked, or it looked like, like shit. shit. <laughs> That's what we got going for us, because they would literally call them. It's like calling someone Limburg right now. Like, be like, really Limburg? Because it stinks. Right. Okay. Now I'm using that the next time somebody with <laughs> aggressive body odor yeah. decides to get in my personal And then space. it's just going to sound like you're like cursing them out in Hebrew because you just be like, Nahaku. Yep. Yep. You're like, yep. And, you know, that's not, it's really Sumerian and Hebrew are not really all that far off. Um, I've seen cuneiform and I've seen Hebrew. You're not wrong. No, no. And they're both Semitic languages. I'll have to double check that, but I'm pretty sure they're Semitic languages. Hittites, who are from Anatolia in the mid-second millennia, had words for types of cheeses. And just like we have a long list of types of tomatoes, here's the list of cheeses. Large, small, fresh, pressed, broken, crumbled, scraped, torn, dry, old, and even aged soldier cheese. Which apparently was also mentioned in the book that says it probably was, they go, I don't know if it's as bad as it sounds. The soldier cheese. They were like, I don't. Maybe it tasted better than it sounds. Aged soldier cheese. Yeah. That doesn't... <laughs> Listen, I was a soldier. There is no part of that that sounds at all appealing. That sounds like, at best, I bet. some dude put a bunch of milk that had spoiled inside his helmet and just let it sit there until it became cheese. That's or... the best option. Yeah. Yeah, that's the best option. Or it's just aged cheese that was popular amongst soldiers because they could travel with it. Oh my I'm god! Come on with that one. Oh my god! One. It's the MRE cheese. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's American cheese. Cheese with bacon is the best one, and the MREs do not fucking fight me. You can send emails. I'll laugh at you. I right. can't wait to talk about MREs because I have <laughs> zero knowledge except for the fact that they sell them at Costco. Oh, we're going to, ah, I mean, I'm sure we're eating MREs. Duh. Yeah. You may not shit for three days, but we're going to eat them. Whatever. You're like, yeah, that's normal. I was pregnant twice. Come at me. (laughs) (laughs) I can go three days. Not a problem. That's a good point. That's a good point, actually. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, So in Greece, uh, cheeses appear on linear B tablets. So uh, linear B is a proto-Greek language. There's two of them. There's linear A and linear B. And they're the like, before Greek was Greek, they were these, right? This is the the sort of parent of Greek language. Linear A, we've never been able to decipher, but linear B we have. So on one of oh. these tablets from linear B, dating around the 14th century BCE from Mycenae, is a list of tif- 10 different cheeses that are required for a feast at, quote, Nestor's Palace. Along with 86.4 liters of wine. That's one hell of a charcuterie party. Uh, Nestor Fox. Nestor Fox. <laughs> like, yeah, he gets <laughs> down. I'm just saying, like, there's 10 different types of cheeses. And you're like, well, you know, like, okay, that, that's a good adult that's lunchable. A, cool, cool. That's a, that's a good garden party. All right. Yes. Cool, cool. But 86 liters of wine. I'm like, God damn, how many people, like, one, how, how many people are at your parties? 
but even if there's 86 people, a liter of wine is a lot. Yep. It's definitely a lot. I've definitely not drank all of that in a singular sitting. I mean, I'm not saying that I have either, party. but it is a lot. Yes, but you were also shit-faced by 10 p.m. <laughs> That's true. So it's a lot of wine. <laughs> it is an obnoxious amount of wine. It is. I our, love it. Our more alcoholic listeners are going to be like, it's not that bad. <laughs> I'm sure that Matt's going to be like, no, I'm pretty sure I've seen you drink more meat than that. And Matt, yes, you have. Oh, you yeah, have yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Aristotle, many years later in the 4th century BCE, wrote about cheese, and this is what he has to say. Milk contains serum called oros, or whey, and a solid called tyros, cheese. The thicker the milk, the more the cheese. The milk of animal without upper incisors coagulates and under domestication is made into cheese. Camel's milk is lightest, mare's second, ass's third, cow's milk the thickest. Some animal products, sorry, some animals produce enough milk for their young and an additional quantity that can be set aside and turned into cheese. This is true, particularly of sheep and goats, and to a smaller extent, cows. Mare's milk and ass's milk are incorporated in the Phrygian cheese. There is more cheese in cow's milk than goat's milk. Herders say that they get 19 tropophilides worth of obol a piece per one amphora so 26 liters of goat's milk whereas from that same quantity of cow's milk they get 30 so whatever the fuck those are <laughs> they get more of it from from cow's milk he's very scientific in his conversation about cheese but i also want to note the things that they're making cheese from All donkeys and yeah. horses uh-huh i vote no I, I don't I don't want to open that door. No, thank you. You can keep you can keep your ass cheese. <laughs> you can also keep your ass scented cheese to your Yeah, yeah, I'm not interested. Not interested, Mr. Aristotle. <laughs> Homer also mentions cheese and cheese is used to honor Greek gods. So you see cheese also being part of uh, mythological and cultural stories as well, not just from a scientific perspective. Quote, I hope one of them is Dionysus. Cheese and wine. Yes. Um, Apollo is one that is often um given cheese. So interesting. Apollo's the god of prophecy and the sun and one of the hunters. Yeah, yeah. She also has he also, you know, has a really poor way with women, and they would rather be fucking trees than fucking him. Yeah. Well, they'd rather be trees. Yes, than yes, 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 yes. Um, um, though I can see someone just like shagging a tree to get out of shagging a god. I mean, at that point, would birth control even work against a god? It didn't seem to work against Zeus. It at definitely all. didn't work for Zeus at all. And we know, and we know the Greeks had had birth control methods. Oh, for sure, they had relatively decent birth control methods. What was the one like herb that they cooked a lot with? in rome that is a abortifacient uh rue was rue yeah so i mean they they the the romans were all about cooking with rue but they also had another herb that they literally like farmed to extinction Mm -hmm. because it was such effective birth control yeah that one was a not ingestible one though right wasn't that a i think it was a suppository one yeah yeah. national suppository but 
they also used, you know, honey and, and garlic and beans and, and <laughs> olive oil and yeah. And, and dung apparently maybe, um, anyways, so, <laughs> um, the Romans definitely had cheese. They talked about cheese in, as both one of their favorite foods and as a luxury, Cheese would also um, begin to be imported into Rome during the Roman Empire, um, as noted by our favorite idiot, Pliny the Elder, around 70 CE, where he talks about cheese coming into the region, uh, only nine years before his famous adrenaline-induced downfall. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah. So, you know, he got like nine years of cheese, at, at least nine years of cheese before he decided to like eat himself into Vesuvius. He really found Nirvana. He had wine. He had cheese. He didn't have anything else to live for. He's like, fuck it. I'm going to watch a volcano. Yeah. I can and, see he, it. and he quite ceased to exist. So yes, Nirvana. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Apuleius in his work, Metamorphoses or the Golden Ass, two different names for the same text from the second century. It's the only ancient Roman novel that have that has survived intact. So Neat. he writes, uh, so the the main character in this uh, Lucius in this uh, novel is a trader, not not like of his country, but like as as a merchant, yeah, merchant <laughs> and, trader. Yeah. And um, so it writes, I'll tell you my trade. I hunt through Thessaly, Anatolia, Boeotia for honey, cheese and all that line of grocery. So like, again, sort of indicative of like one that the Romans had cheese. Two, that there's a market for cheese and there's an import-export business of cheese uh, during this time. So again, second century. So we've known cheese was awesome for a very long time. Cheese, yeah. Cheese has been around a long time and has always been beloved. Like I haven't found any sort of sources that are like, well, that's not true. Gallon, uh uh-huh. I'm shocked. Was not a fan of cheese. He said that it was not good for you. There's something about, I didn't want to go crazy into it because I feel like it's, better for a different cheese episode um but there's something about the difference between soft cheeses and aged cheeses they were not about an aged cheese um he said it was too hard too old it's gonna be bad for you <laughs> so, he's just lactose intolerant it's fine Wait, which is funny because aged cheese has virtually Less. no lactose yeah so yeah it's, it's, uh, you know what are or he we- just was like eh, the vibe is bad i don't want to eat anything that's like hard yeah. Because it seems I, like he made a lot of his decisions on like the his, vibes bad. Yes. Also, I mean, but like Brie was definitely a cheese that it's one of the older cheeses, definitely a cheese that would have been eaten in Rome. And um, yeah, he was probably a fan of Brie as opposed to say a parm. Which is just rude. Both both have their places. I am craving a Brie and turkey sandwich so bad right now. I'm so sorry. You can't have that. Me too. Yeah, really, I have the reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Anywho, don't eat deli meats while you're pregnant or soft cheeses. Particularly turkey and brie. Yeah. Anywho, so now again, there's a huge history of cheese throughout Europe that predates Roman the Roman Empire. It's a bit more sparse. Um, also, again, I could go for forever about cheese development in china russia northern europe and please don't get me started about cheese in africa it's one of the oldest cheese makers in the world but since mozzarella is from italy i figured that we would hone in on this location and kind of stick to the mediterranean and really stick a bit more to italy so that we don't go crazy and we can actually talk more about this 
in a multi-part episode about cheese. Yes. And do it a proper justice. Um, also, an interesting, <laughs> yeah, an interesting side note is that um, peoples of the America and Australia did not seem to use milk or milk products prior to colonization. I want to look into that more. Um, and it's because of the cattle, uh, the, the livestock they had available to them, right? There's no, <laughs> there's no cows in the Americas prior to colonization. I mean, we had buffalo though, right? But, buffalo and bison? But- well, but the buffalo is bison. They're really not buffalo. So but I don't know about to... I don't know about milk and a bison. <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing. But <laughs> um, and then the other the other livestock that you have are, you know, llamas and alpaca. <laughs> and and I mean camel and goat cheese exist, but I again I don't know how I feel about eating alpaca milk. I've I've met llamas and I can't imagine trying to milk one of the little ornery bastards. So (laughs) no, (laughs) they also just, I mean, I don't know. A cow doesn't necessarily look appealing either, but it's just my own cultural. No, but we've made them docile. Even with like, we've turned them into dogs. Even with, even with breeding for the best possible temperaments, which we've been doing with domesticated livestock for fucking ever. Even with that, llamas are still bastards. Yeah, they suck. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. yeah. Having to what's, like... what's, what's the tiny? Uh, alpacas, the tiny llama. I keep alpacas thinking emu, the and tiny... I'm like, that's a... Alpacas are tiny, friendly llamas. I could kind of see trying to milk an alpaca, because yeah, at but... least they're friendly. But then or... I'm wondering, like, what their milk production is like because again right aristotle talking about the livestock that can produce enough milk for its own young plus extra for human consumption which again once in the year in the industrial era that we don't give two fucks about whether or not the young calves get fed because we're a bunch of selfish twats but especially not in like factory farming absolutely not i mean cows are kept just pumping out babies so that and we milk. can keep and milked for forever so that we can keep drinking milk so an interesting an interesting thing about the dairy industry is that we did actually try to address this and like basically putting cows on birth control um we tried to give them hormones to maintain milk production even past that so they weren't constantly giving birth Mm -hmm. but then the hormones are passed in milk and we were seeing side effects in humans so now we don't do that and we take the crueler option for the cows so we don't fuck up humans that i remember that being a hot topic when i was pubescent yeah, um, it became like a really big thing in the late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah, early yeah. aughts into like the tens, because yeah, I think that's I re- when we started advertising no additional hormones, no RBST, that kind of thing. Yeah, because I remember there was a lot of like girls who started really young, and they were precocious contribu- puberty. Yeah, yeah. and because they were attributing it to to the hormones that were in cows. Yeah, I mean, you know, at eight and nine years old is very young. Yeah, we attribute precocious puberty in a lot of those cases to the the hormones in milk, but something that we also didn't talk about is the absolute rampant sex abuse that was going on at the time, mm-hmm. post-satanic panic, which oh, also yeah. contributes to precocious puberty. So yeah, we solved one problem and ignored the other. It's fine. That's well, the American yeah, way. You know, one problem can be fixed and the other one is hidden by men in power, so committed by men in power it's thus being hidden yes yes 
So while cheese was eaten all over Afro-Eurasia and was definitely eaten in Rome and more broadly Italy, none of the famous Caesars or senators or citizens were eating mozzarella. They're missing out. Yeah. Um, and although there's like some evidence that Romans were making a similar cheese to mozzarella as early as the first century CE, it was from sheep's milk. So slightly different. But I don't know. Why weren't they eating mozzarella, right? Becomes the question because they clearly have all the things there to do so. And mozzarella is delicious. And it's kind of like the Italian, other than parm, it's kind of what we think of as like the Italian cheese. So it's one of the most accessible Italian cheeses. It It is. So it's very stringy and melty and it, it doesn't have like a really strong smell or flavor texture yeah for so all that's why flavorless americans <laughs> yes 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 um but mozzarella is like the baby sister of cheeses it's really only been around for about 700 years from the oh. sources that we have uh which on the scale of world history is like yesterday um very on world his on world history scale cheese as a whole has socks that are older mozzarella. 100%. Yeah. So, and uh, mozzarella is traditionally made from water buffalo milk. So my dear listeners from America, I need you to go and Google an image of a water buffalo because it is not an American buffalo. It's not a bison. They are, they're smaller and they have the cutest little horns, Um, but they look very different than a bison. They look much more closely related to a cow. Um, I love that Birdie's doing this right now. Um, yep, they sure do. There's also <laughs> not a huge difference between the male and female water buffalo. So they're about the same size consistently between the two. Maybe uh, I saw something is like maybe 100 kilogram separation of, of weight. There's some difference, but not a whole lot. Mozzarella is traditionally made with buffalo milk and water buffaloes are indigenous to Asia. So how do we get Italian cheese? They're an imported animal. They were brought to Italy around the second century CE to help with rice farming. They have a broader hoof than other cattle. And so they don't sink into the marshy fields of rice paddies, basically. (laughs) Buffalo milk also has a higher butter fat than cows, which makes it ideal ideal for cheese making. I want buffalo milk now. I, I feel like it would have a lot of butter milk then, right? Is that or like it would yield a lot of butter? Yes, that's why I want it. I want yeah. to make butter with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, additionally, it can yield more cheese per gallon than than cow's milk, which is nice because when we made a half a gallon worth of mozzarella cheese, we, we got, got like, I don't know, this four and a half di- diameter circle of cheese. Yeah. Four and a half. Six by like, servings. We got like six servings of cheese. It was like maybe four and a half inches by one inch. Yeah. It's it very... Was- very small amount of cheese. Um, we more salt too, but we'll get there. Oh, I think I have an idea for that too. Woo. Yeah. Uh, so even though the water buffalo, buffalo came to Italy in the second century CE, the earliest record that we have of mozzarella is from the 12th century. And it's this that gets quoted every single place. So I'm just going to use it, but it's from a document in from a Benedictine monk, San Lorenzo di Quapa. Uh, Capua, Capua, San Lorenzo di Capua, um, that mozzarella was mentioned, and it states that the cheese called mutz was given out on bread to the poor on holidays. I love that it had its shitty American nickname prior to like America existing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's just called Mott's. Mott's. He's like, put Mott's on some bread. Give it to the poor people. They'll love it. It'd be great. Merry Christmas. <laughs> on, on a holiday. So like here during Christmas tide, here yeah. during the monthly feast, yeah. here during it's some Easter. saint's birthday. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Yeah. Have have fun. Enjoy. Cheese, uh, bread. They probably threw some tomatoes on it because they were poor. This is true. Much later, authentic mozzarella di bufala became a staple in, you guessed it, Naples. Naples. <laughs> in a 1570 cookbook by a chef to the papal court named Bartholomew Cappy, uh, he, lists, he lists mozzarella and specifically calls for buffalo milk in his uh, in his listing on the menu for for this papal court. He is the first guy that took a poor food and served it to rich people. Yes. But made it sound fancy. Much later, right? So it's a staple in Naples. It was documented in 17 or sorry, 1570. Um, buffaloes in the Campania region, so the same one with uh, San Marzano's, began to be bred more intensely around the 18th century. And this leads to the rise of mozzarella productions um, and limited export, right? They still don't have modern refrigeration. So gotcha. you can get mozzarella to lar- like further areas in Italy, maybe even to France, some in Germany. But other than that, it's not really going much further. I wonder if that's why we have like mozzarella pearls and stuff that are more imported cheeses here in saltwater baths. Yes. Yes. And again, it's because it's a fresh cheese and no refrigeration. So it really can't travel that far. So from the 20th century though, um, Buffalo mozzarella can be imported further out due to refrigeration, but remains kind of a novelty in the U S due to the difficulty in raising Buffalo American Buffalo again is a bison. So you either have to get the like DOP consortium grade <laughs> mozzarella di bufala from Italy. And again, they're not importing a ton of that into the United States. Or you have a farmer in the United States, maybe North Carolina, <laughs> who has water buffalo and will raise them to make mozzarella. The problem is. The United States fucking sucks for water buffalo. What? It's, it's just not, it's not, it doesn't work for them. And so raising water buffalo is a pain in the ass uh, in the United States. It's labor intensive. It's expensive as all bloody fuck. And farmers are much better, you know, like they just are like, we'll stick with cows. It's totally fine. We can, we can make a much bigger profit with dairy farming cows than we can with water buffalo so it just ends up being something that's not a staple in the united states the way that if you go to italy and you ask for mozzarella you're getting buffalo mozzarella unless you specifically ask for cow milk mozzarella which has a completely different name and you're probably going to get like side-eyed all the shit for asking like yeah i mean like the fuck why do you want that but okay you want the lesser cheap got american palate got it pretty, pretty much so what is it that we're eating in the United States, right? Is it mozzarella? Is it fake, right? It's the fake San Marzano issue again, right? Oh, God. No. Uh, mozzarella in the U.S. is predominantly made from cow's milk. So it follows the same process. It's just a different milk source. So, of course, it's going to have a slightly different flavor to it. It's a little less creamy, apparently. Um, has a slightly more acidic taste to it than the buffalo milk. So, But, again, still follows the same process. So... The process for making mozzarella 
is it sounds so simple. We're just going to go over it. It sounds very simple. So it did sound really simple. <laughs> yes. So you take the milk and you heat it with citric acid. We did vinegar. We did a different thing, but you heat it with citric acid. And then when the heat increases to where you want it, I think it's at that 150 range, you add rennet, which is the bile of a calf. Yuck. Um, but you can also get a vegetarian option. So they sell it in pill form tablet form or they sell it in liquid form but you can only buy it online they do not sell it at your specialty grocery stores here in southern california Rude. yeah so you can get it with amazon prime in a day though but anyways so be a sponsor amazon you no. have plenty of money to sponsor you own 47 percent of the internet it's yes yeah yeah so you heat when the heat increases you increase you add the rennet and this is what is going to separate the curds from the whey. Interesting. Mozzarella just means separation. Not, not, a, nope. No genius necessary. You separate the curds in the whey, you call it mozzarella. <laughs> means to separate. Uh, uh, moz, uh, mozzare is to separate. I, Italian. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it so much. Uh, once the curds are separated, they are cooked in roughly 180 degree water or the whey stirred and stretched to the desired consistency and then quote cut usually by hand and i've been watching videos of this and it is such a beautiful thing to watch but he he stirred a lot more than we stirred because we were not told to stir so more maybe that would help with the smoothness next time and that's basically what it says is that that like that stirring and that it stretches it and that adds to that silkiness and because we didn't quite get to a silky place with our no. mozzarella I've also seen recipes where the mozzarella is to remain in that hot whey anywhere from intervals of about 20 seconds, which is what we did. We would dip into the whey, let it come up to that like 180-ish, whatever, a few seconds, pull it out, knead it, stretch it, put it back in. But I've also seen recipes that call for it to sit in that whey for three to six hours while you stir. That's a lot of stir. Continuously. Nope. You get the stick thing that you put in the water mm -hmm. and you turn it on and it does the stirring for you yeah yeah it is like they said oh you think risotto, risotto is hard Nah, we that's got mozzarella cute. for you bitches <laughs> like i don't know what is it about an italian arm that's just good at this for hours <laughs> but it's it's it seems like that just seems to be a staple of italian food <laughs> genetic predisposition from yes. years and years of doing it Oh, yes. But due to this process, mozzarella is often a really light yellow, even white in color. It has no rind and has a soft, fibrous texture with a slightly acidic, sour, milky taste were the descriptions of mozzarella that I found. Interesting, because I would not associate sour with mozzarella. Neither would I. But that's yeah, that seems to be sort of the the flavor palette that they like where they say that it sort of lands is in a sour space but yeah i don't know not sold on that but <laughs> yeah me neither i can i can appreciate where they're coming from i although, just don't agree although we didn't think that garlic was sulfuric either and i've seen a ton of people now discuss it as sulfuric which is interesting it could be that they're talking specifically about flavor yeah. which would make sense as opposed to overall taste yeah so in 1993 best part of the story super annoying in 1993, mozzarella di bufala is a spe was specifically trademarked as a cheese that came from Italy, specifically Campania, water buffalo. 
So again, DOP status, official, like you can't, you can call something like buffalo cheese mozzarella or buffalo mozzarella, but you cannot say it's like mozzarella di bufala unless it has that DOP consortium, all the stuff from the Campania region. I don't know what it is about Naples that says mine, (laughs) but they're very, and it's, I mean, it's not even just an Italian thing. I've seen it with other things as well, but it's so interesting that like the ways in which I'm shopping is so different because like one, I make fun of these things, but I'm also looking for these things. I'm like, if I'm going to spend money on getting honey or getting olive oil or getting cheese, like I want to know where that shit's from. And so finding those DOP and um, later on a um, PDO stamps are really interesting to find, to be able to say, like, I know where this is from. I make fun of it, but I also recognize the, the desire for knowing exactly where things come from. And it also probably makes it easier to understand, like, when there are foodborne outbreaks, what areas they're from. Yeah. But I do think that there is a governmental process here that is getting a little bit not overreaching. I don't want to say that because it's not my government, Yeah, but I do think it's very involved as far as a process to maintain like that. Well, ours is, it's the implication that ours is the only real one because it's the only one that has this trademark. And at least they haven't taken people to court as far as I know they might've for using Buffalo mozzarella because they'll be like, but mozzarella di bufala translates to buffalo mozzarella and so you can't use it well and it feels like so from a consumer side of thing it's great to be able to know that this is a system know that there's things on the packaging that can give you more information as to where it's from and what it is that you're paying for and why one thing of mozzarella is four dollars and the other one's fourteen dollars right yeah and is it worth spending that extra money for for a an imported cheese that you know where it's coming from versus being like, no, I'm just putting this on my fucking kid's spaghetti. Let's get the the block of it. So it's fine. But it does feel like there's this governmental capitalist. I don't want to go so far to say greed, but it definitely has a superiority to it that says, right. If it doesn't have this stamp, it's not worth buying. If it doesn't have the stamp, it's not real. Or it's it's not at at a high quality where there are farmers in other regions that are pushing out quality products um they're just not from naples it just it feels classist and that's probably a very american like because american stuff we do that all the time is like it has this big seal of approval and it has this safety measure involved even though that doesn't really make much of a difference in this and that but that's how we market things is like this is better because it has an official seal of approval so we're probably looking at it through that lens as yeah, well. in, anything you can give like a certificate of authenticity in the United States, we're like, damn, that's fucking sick. Yeah. And it doesn't like we put them on comic books, right? Yeah. Um, and and we put them, like on such like ridiculous things. We put them on fucking dolls for kids. Like this is an official Cabbage Patch. You're like, just get the fucking kid a doll. She's gonna destroy it and write all over it anyways. American. Yeah, I wasn't trying to go real hard, but yeah, American Girl Dolls. Oh no, are... I'm gonna let <laughs> let me go hard for such you. A, such oh my god, it's such a scam, it's such a scam. Also, yeah. if you want an American Girl style doll that one 
doesn't have all the things attached to it, but also has a ton of accessories and outfits and all the things, go to Target. They have their own version. It is slightly more expensive than, say, a Barbie, but it's not American doll style, like levels of my sister my sister and I were both gifted American girl dolls one year I was like 12 and she was like three or just about to turn three both of those ages are not great for that doll no they're not um because the three-year-old's going to destroy the hundred dollar doll and the 12 year old is more interested in not dolls so they were my mom got them as specifically like I don't know collectors pieces sort Mm -hmm. of deal because they were were the ones that you customize to look like your kid. So we had our own little mini me dolls, which is exceptionally creepy <laughs> and exceptionally expensive. So like, this is the first time I've ever mentioned how fucking creepy I found this doll. <laughs> it is weird to look into a version of yourself. That's like a foot tall mm-hmm. and lifeless, but the eye color matches and the hair color matches and it's wearing something that you know your mom would love for you to wear. But you'll which... never be caught dead in that shit. Correct. Was it a pink like, dress? It was purple. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> with like. We got you pegged, duck. <laughs> little little pink bows at like the oh, bust. God. Yeah. And, and at then 12, on the you're like, what? Trying to get her to buy you some fucking Doc Martens? <laughs> at 12, I was wearing my favorite outfit at the time, which I'm just outing myself all over the place here, was a grayish blue tank top with wolves on it (laughs) i know and blue camo cargo shorts and these little like athletic they're like outdoor ankle boot sort of deal okay with orange socks how i I grew up to marry a man is anybody's guess how you grew up to marry not a trailer park man oh no it was much more butch like baby gay to, okay. to white trash. It sounds white trash. It does sound because the, the camo. But now now that you're telling me like. I looked like the, in the baby gay. I also had like really short hair. Oh, my hair was yeah. my hair was like that 90s boy cut that it just kind of flops down in front of your face. Nice. It was that. Um, a little Nick Carter. Little Nick Carter. Yeah. But your hair's not straight. So. <laughs> yeah. Right. Other than the DOP Buffalo mozzarella. The consortium has also put a trademark on mozzarella D. Gioia, I can't speak Italian, guys, but it's basically cow milk mozzarella. So it wasn't enough for Italy to have a hold on the buffalo mozzarella, but the consortium also says, hey, we can also make this shit with cow's milk and say that it's really super good uh, because it's Italian. And there was was our our wrap it up box. (laughs) Oh, that's our chicken. Okay. I was like, was that another uh, another solicitor? But oh, no, that was our chicken telling us, hey, you've been at it for an hour. Cool, cool. I'm almost done here, though. So, uh, right. So we have these DOP and PDO stamps. We have a very Italian governmental oversight for mozzarella. But let's talk about the global market. So the global market for mozzarella is interesting. The global market is $37 billion and is projected to reach um, a size of $60 billion by 2030, which is huge. billion in mozzarella cheese. Yeah, yeah. The global market analysis presents a... So this is from businesswire.com. The global market analysis presents a comprehensive assessment of blocks, shreds, 
slice, cubes, buffalo, cow, and other sources segmented into the cheese industry. So this is the the whole of mozzarella cheese, not sort of parsing out the types. Other um, other sources. So I guess they'd be including vegan mozzarella under that? Yes. Cool. Lactose-free, even though mozzarella is already lactose-free, but they also market lactose-free mozzarella. Uh, the report focuses on analyzing the recent, current, and future trends for these cheese products across various geographical regions. Um, and the study covers sales uh, in terms of, of U.S. millions. So the mozzarella cheese market in the U.S. is the largest mozzarella industry. I'm shocked, I tell you. China's, yeah. China is the world's second largest economy and is forecasted to reach a projection size of $4.3 billion in mozzarella cheese production by 2030. But that's still substantially less than the United States. Well, yeah. But just the United States market is $9.3 billion. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. I can't, just... see your fa- I can't see your face. That's why. So we among... Just... Go ahead. so much goddamn cheese in this country. <laughs> we do. Among other noteworthy geographic markets are Japan and Canada, each forecasted to grow about 5%, uh, 5 to 7% over the period from 2022 to 2030. Within Europe, Germany is forecasted to grow at approximately 5%, led by countries such as Austria, India, and South Korea. The market for Asian Pacific is forecasted to reach $3.4 billion. So basically, mozzarella is growing. It's most popular in the United States and in Europe, clearly Italy as well. Uh, Germany is for, you know, is, is a growing market. And then you also start to see that mozzarella is entering into markets um, at a growing rate in Japan and in China and in Southeast Asian countries as well. So it's That's basically really cool. spreading and go and, and growing. I was looking at, right. Cause I'm just reading like this business well market stuff. And again, I'm a historian, so it makes sense, but it's also a little like, okay. But one of the things, so there's a, it says focus on select players. And so it's like the top selling or top production companies. And there are, there's 15 listed on this this list of top mozzarella production companies. Can you guess how many of them are Italian? Have Italian names or are Italian? Are Italian. Uh, out of 16? Yeah, 15. 15? I'd mm-hmm. say maybe four. Two. Yeah. Two of them. One of them is from Australia. One of them is from New Zealand. Most of them are from the United States. And two of them, it is the Arla Food Amba and mm-hmm. the uh, this last one here, which is Trevisanalot <laughs> SPA. Again, guys, I'm so sorry. Um, those are the only two. But then you have like, you know, Boar's Head and Kraft, um, the, you know, names that are really ubiquitous here in the United States. So Bell favorite things like that. My favorite is Grande Cheese Company. Yeah, big cheese. That, that's a New Zealand company. Oh, no, no, I lied. Sorry, that's a Wisconsin one. It is. That a, was from, it's, it's from Wisconsin. A lot of them are from Wisconsin. It's a ton from Wisconsin. It's so very, is it? Well, Wisconsin is a cheese capital. But anyways. It is. Uh, it is. So does that mean it's grand? Not grande? Because that would be even fucking funnier. Yeah. They're not I, grande I cheese. They're grand cheese. I it might be grand cheese. I don't know. Oh my God. Um, but yeah, so the things that I am running into as far as 
mozzarella is that we have a ton of mozzarella at our disposal here in the United States, but it's not going to be anything that would be like what you would be eating in Italy for a number of reasons. One, we have low moisture. We have like the the block of of mozzarella, which seems to be one of the highest uh, selling mozzarella styles in the United States, which is just block cheese. Yeah. And, and it's not great. The holder from government cheese. Yeah. So trying to get something that it's going to be indicative of what we think of as like Italian, like, uh, you know, something from Nepal, something that had even something that's like kind of, you know, New York style, because New York style, there's a lot of places in New York that use buffalo cheese. The thing is, no one's really doing it here in California. And let me tell you, I've almost resorted to calling different pizzerias in the region on the list of, so I looked up the um, number one pizza places in San Diego. And of that list, I was looking through their about section and they're like who we are and what we do and what we make and all that bullshit. Nowhere did they mention using buffalo cheese. I'm so tempted to call them and be like, hey, motherfuckers, what kind of cheese do you use? Because can I just buy your cheese? <laughs> like, I'm doing a podcast. I'll shout you out. It'll be a thing. But I need your cheese. <laughs> I need. I I have a need for cheese. Yeah. I have found sprouts apparently has a brand it is not italian does not have the dop on it but it is buffalo cheese and i have found that there is a place it's up by like carmel mountain which is at least 30 minutes from me about 45 minutes from you so that say, is an a, hour with traffic yeah it's a really like niche specialty market and they seem to have dop italian cheese so road trip on friday maybe road trip um, and then i'm going to order the rennet off of amazon uh rennet tablets for i think 10 of them are like six bucks and i can get them overnight oh, that's easy. so yeah easy day uh you now i'm saying easy day you're welcome Ew, but that's funny <laughs> that i'm picking up your co- colloquialisms but yeah so making mozzarella yum yeah i think that we definitely need to try it again there is a series on Bon Appetit from like pre-COVID, COVID era that, because everyone was watching Bon Appetit during COVID, we had nothing else to do. But there is, they set out to make the the best pizza. And so they break mm-hmm. into teams of like the different type, parts of the pizza. So like, what's the best, you know, crust and dough recipes? What's the best mozzarella? What's the best toppings? Like all the things. And so there's like three or four episodes on mozzarella. So like they go in and they're tasting both buffalo and cow and they're making mozzarella. I think they went into different places where they're actually like trying to learn like traditional ways of making it. I think they sent their asses to Italy, Um, but it's really interesting and we need to watch it for technique and things. But I think uh, uh, the biggest problem with what I think we made was that it just, we didn't do it for long enough. Yeah. And that's fair. Like, yeah. Because we did, we used a half a gallon of whole milk, not ultra pasteurized, was pasteurized, but not ultra pasteurized. And I think we did only a half gallon just in case we fucked up. We still had a half a gallon to play with. Yes. Um, Which I've also used recently. Of course. So yeah, like, of course. Yeah. We used vinegar, white vinegar as the um, curdling agent. So again, I think the rennet and citric acid will probably be a little bit better, little bit better. or at least more traditional. I guess probably um, a little easier to work with because it was like the curds were so small. They they were very small. Yeah. We need cheesecloth too because we, we didn't do need a cheesecloth cheese because the 
the fine mesh sieve stole all of our curd. Um, but yeah, so then we just, we boiled things. To, I mean, boiled, it wasn't quite at boiling temperature, but we cooked Simmered. it down, waited for the separation, lots of squeezing and dumping back into hot water, hot whey to bring back out and squeeze again. Not as hot as I thought it was going to be, but definitely toasty on the hands. Yeah. It seemed like um, it was a bit not fun on the hands. It was okay. It, like it, it dissipated quickly. You know, you kind of get used to 180 degree cheese in your hands. <laughs> it's amazing what we can get used to. It. This is true. So I don't know. What did you think of the cheese? I thought it was good. On its own, it definitely needed more salt. Mm-hmm. Probably could have stretched, done like the stretching thing a little bit more. But we were also like kind of short on time, which is never a great thing for yeah trying to do something that's labor intensive. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, that, sorry, I think that we made a very good mozzarella style cheese. I yes. don't think that we made mozzarella. Correct. That's and, where and, I'm kind of at. Yeah. And like all of the things that we think of as mozzarella, like we got more of a crumbly cheese because we didn't have that stretching to it. So it didn't like tear in that like sort of stretchy fibrous, like string cheesy sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, it had a little bit of, of give to it, but then would kind of fall like, apart, fall apart a little bit. Um, not quite like a biscuit would fall apart. Like it's not super crumbly, but definitely like when you cut into it, it had more crumbly pieces than that, like pulley. It wasn't cotija, like, but it, it was, was, it was not that. Yeah. But it had a little bit too much of a crumble to it for it to really feel like a, um, it also didn't melt as well as I was hoping for. It did not. I also felt like, because we put it, we made like a, uh, like a bruschetta toast mm-hmm. with it. It was very good mixed into the flavors of tomato and basil and balsamic and all the things. Yeah. I came, I brought some home for me and Topher to try together. Mm -hmm. And I think having that separation, having it in a new space had like sort of, you know, palate cleanser in between. It had Mm -hmm. a very like milky flavor to me. Yeah. Um, I've noticed that too. In a way that mozzarella doesn't really taste like milk. Yeah. So I don't know if it was just we didn't cook it long enough. Again, like I said, I saw people were cooking it for three to six hours. So who knows? I think it's going to take a little bit more research on the cooking side of things to really kind of get a technique. But again, the Bon Appetit episodes, I mean, they were trying a number of times to get it right because it seems very easy and it's not. Like there's something in the magic of cheese making that you kind of need to know the spell <laughs> to get it just right. And, and how do you learn magic. a spell? You practice. You practice, right? You practice, and then you feed it to your husband to see if it works. That's what we did (laughs) to both our husbands. Sure did. I also saw, I was watching um, just a short clip on, like, traditional mozzarella making, because that's Mm -hmm. what we watch now. And when he added salt, he did it as a saltwater bath. I think that's a great idea. Because, like, when you get mozzarella from the store, almost to a to a type if it's going to come in a water bath it's a salt water bath and I think that helps with salting the mozzarella and yeah so he would have like the mozzarella like he pulled it out of the thing and he took like a fine mesh strainer and salt water and was like pouring that through there so like any larger things of salt that didn't get dissolved would be you know held back you weren't getting clumps of things but it's already dissolved in the water and he would just kind of knead it around in that and then pop it back in and do all the stretching so I don't know. There's different techniques that we can try. Um, Okay. So mozzarella, we need to make some more of. I'm going to try to get my hands on buffalo mozzarella so we can actually taste side by side. Yes. It's limited though, right? So uh, 
barring us from actually getting on a plane to Italy, it's going to be kind of limited what we're able to taste. Yeah. Uh, and I don't... On the upside, we can actually do like a, a road trip on Friday. Yeah. get the shit. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited Mi- for that. Mr. Birdie will be here. He can even chauffeur us. Oh, nice. Even better. We can both yes. like sit in the back. Yes. And be chauffeured. <laughs> yes. Nice. That's weird, but I like it. I mean, I might sit up front because like nothing is comfortable for me right now. This but... is true. This is true. Um, totally fine. Yeah. So next episode is our culmination of all these episodes yes i'm so excited what have we been working towards bird pizza pizza Pizza! have olive oil and tomatoes and marinara and garlic and now mozzarella so we're gonna make some fucking pizza and we're gonna talk to you all about it so it's super super excited yes oh that reminds me of for some reason that reminded me of a beer i need you to try at some point nice it's called pizza and beer just yeah it it goes together not this beer but pizza and beer is like a natural combination and probably much older than we're expecting (laughs) but yeah although i think pizza and wine might go together too with that whole like you know 86 liters of wine for their cheese party 86.4 for their cheese party i'm sure there are flatbreads there (laughs) yes oh i'm so excited we're gonna have to we're gonna split up the episode it's gonna be a combo episode for sure of of the history of pizza because it is it's, well, it's a big history. Yeah, you're going to take most of the like ancient history stuff mm-hmm. and then I'm going to take like regional variations, more modern yeah. history and like talk about yeah. toppings and things. Yeah, I think I'm going to take like pre-tomato pizza. And I'll take post-tomato pizza. Yeah, I love it. Perfect. So we will see you all. See you all. We'll hear you all. You'll hear us next time. Yeah. Until then, stay hungry for history. History Between Bites is written, produced, and performed by Samantha Nelson and Bertie Mills. Music is by Michelle Mountain. Find us on Instagram at History Between Bites Pod and Facebook at History Between Bites. Coming soon is Hearth or Table, a new YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to never miss an episode and leave a review or rate us wherever you get your podcasts. History Between Bites is a product of History Between Bites LLC, all rights reserved 2023. buffalo in north carolina yes there's a loose fucking water buffalo in north carolina three 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 chinese water buffaloes decided to roam a neighborhood in charlotte north carolina that is your people (laughs)